Chapter 14 of Hester, A Story of Contemporary Life by Margaret O. Oliphant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Erickson, Toronto. Chapter 14, Harry's View. Of all the people who dismissed his affairs and were interested in his prosperity, Harry Vernon himself would have agreed most entirely with Catherine. He had no very elevated ideal, either of life in general, or even of love, though that influenced him at the present moment very powerfully. He had got to be very fond, as he himself would have described it, of Hester. He thought her very pretty to begin with, very delightful, attractive, and amusing, the sort of girl with whom life would never be dull. He thought her clever, one who would be able to manage his now somewhat too large and unwieldy house and take the trouble off his hands. He thought that handsomely dressed, as of course she would be, she would look very nice at the head of his table and make it popular, better even than Ellen had done. For in Ellen's time it had been somewhat fast and noisy, more than Harry, with the instincts of a respectable citizen and man of business, felt to be advantageous, though he had enjoyed it well enough. In all these particulars he felt that his affections were leading him wisely, and that not merely love, always avowedly more or less folly, but discrimination and sense were in his choice. But he would have thought Catherine perfectly right about the advantages on Hester's side, and he would not have been disgusted or offended by the suggestion that Mrs. John had schemed to place her daughter in the White House, and done her best not to let such an eligible suitor slip through her hands. And quite right, too, he would have said. He knew that he would be a catch for Hester, and that as she was no fool, it was inconceivable that she should not jump at him. This idea did not offend him at all that she should marry him because he could give her rank, which otherwise she would not have, was a natural, sensible, perfectly legitimate reason to Harry. Had there been a rival in the field with greater things to offer, he would have felt that he had a right to pause, to think what was most to her advantage. But as there was nobody, he thought probably that Hester would be a great fool if she made any difficulty. Catherine had offended herself, and offended Edward by her suggestion, but she would not have offended Harry. That is about it. That is the true state of the case, he would have said. And it is possible that he might have represented that notwithstanding the fact that she had no money, Hester would not be an altogether bad investment, for she had connections. Mrs. John might be a silly little woman, but she was Sir John Westwood's cousin, and a little more backing up from the county people would do the Vernons no harm. Thus he took a very common-sense view of the whole concern, thinking it perfectly reasonable that Mrs. John should scheme, and that Hester should consider the advantages. He thought even that she had probably calculated the uses of holding back, and that her expeditions with the old captain, her disappearances at the time of his own visits, were done with a distinct intention of drawing a fellow on. It made him very angry, especially as matters came to a crisis, to find her absent, and only Mrs. John, very nervous and apologetic, waiting for him when he went in. But after the first bitterness of the disappointment, he was ready to allow that it was good policy, and that he was all the more anxious in the pursuit because she thus played with him and kept him in uncertainty. 
if Hester had but known that she was supposed to be drawing him on by her absences. But fortunately she did not know, and nothing could have made them understand each other on that point. They belonged to two different species and talked different languages, but the superficial explanation which Catherine was ashamed of herself for giving, and which Edward despised, would have seemed quite natural to Harry, though in many ways he was better than they were, and far more true to his own system of morality. He neither hid nor deceived. He did not cheat himself nor anyone else, and truth is so precious that even a low, matter-of-fact truth is better than half a falsehood, however delicately and cleverly carried out. Harry was all genuine throughout, not elevated in kind, but never pretending to be what he was not. He liked to think that he had a great many advantages to bestow, and that the lady of his hopes had too much good sense not to take these advantages into consideration. This was different from wild impulse and passion, which some people think finer things. But Harry did not think so. He knew nothing indeed about them. He considered that a man and on the other side perhaps an heiress, might please his fancy, in the first place, about his wife, before thinking of other matters, but that the girl should weigh the advantages and strain a point to accept a good offer was as clear to him as daylight. It would not in the smallest degree have vexed him to know that his own claims were thus reasonably weighed. He had the proud satisfaction of thinking that Hester was not very likely to get such another offer, and he felt sufficient confidence in her good sense to be sure that this must have its just influence upon her. Why should not it weigh with her? She was no fool. She could not but see on which side the advantage lay. The only thing was that he got tired of waiting for the decision. He thought it unreasonable that having so honorably and unequivocally displayed his attentions, he should not be allowed to carry them out. Summer began to wane and autumn to come on, and yet he had never been able to speak to the object of his affections. At last his patience failed him altogether. He announced his mind to Mrs. John almost with solemnity. "'I can't go on much longer,' he said. "'The servants worry me to death. Ellen always took that sort of thing off my hands. But I don't want Ellen to get in her nose again and spoil my wife's chances when she does come. The truth is I should like to get married before Christmas, if I am to be married at all.' Why should Hester hold me off and on? If she won't have me, let her say so, and I can look elsewhere. I don't think I should have much difficulty in finding, he concluded, his annoyance going off in a half-smile of vanity as he caressed his light moustache. A shiver ran through Mrs. John. Before Christmas, even if Hester would consent at all, was it possible that her reluctance could be overpowered so soon, or that she should be made to acquiesce in Harry's quite practical and matter-of-fact view? "'No doubt you want a lady in the house,' she said sympathetically. "'I am sure if I could be of any use.' "'Oh, yes, of course you could be of use,' said the straightforward lover. "'After we are married, but would be making a laughing-stock of ourselves if I were to have you before. "'If there was any reason for putting off, I might wait, but I don't see any reason. "'Once it's settled, we could make up our arrangements comfortably.' It is being hung up like this from week to week, which is such a nuisance to me. He went away that evening almost angry. What was to be done? Mrs. John's natural instinct was to talk to Hester, 
but she had learned by experience that talking to is not a very effectual instrument. All that she had been able to say had been said, but without much apparent effect. She had pointed out all the advantages. She had shown with tears in her eyes what a change it would be, what an unspeakable, delightful difference. Insensibly to herself, Mrs. John had become eloquent upon the charms, if not of Harry, at least of the White House. But this had suddenly been brought home to her by her remorseless child, who said calmly, Mother, if I could marry the house and let you have it, I would do so in a moment, which stopped Mrs. John's mouth. Marry the house? she said with a surprised cry. It is of the house you are talking. I know it is nice, or at least I know you like it. I do not care for it myself. Oh, Hester, my first married home. Yes, mother, I know. I wish I could get it for you. On easier terms, the girl said with a sigh. And this was about all that ever came of talking to her. She was very obstinate and such a strange girl. But sometimes Providence, so much appealed to, whom we upbraid for not furthering us and backing up our plans, suddenly did interfere. It was entirely by chance, as people say. Mrs. John had gone out of the room not two minutes before, and Hester, who had been walking and had just come in, stood before the old-fashioned dark mirror which occupied the space between the windows, arranging her hair which had been blown about by the wind. It was, as has been said, troublesome hair, so full of curls that the moment it had a chance it ran out of the level and orderly into rings and twists, which were quite unfashionable in those days. It had been loosened out by the wind, and she was trying to coax it back into its legitimate bondage, with her arms raised to her head and her back turned to the door. Harry came in without knocking, and the first intimation Hester had that the long-avoided moment had come, and that there was no escape for her, was when she saw his large form in the glass, close to her, looming over her, his fair head above hers, looking down with admiration and tenderness upon her image. She turned round hastily with a cry of astonishment, her rebellious locks escaping from her hands. "'Why shouldn't you let it stay so? It is very pretty so.' Harry said, looking at the curly mass with a smile, as if he had a great mind to take a lock of it in his fingers. Hester sprang away from him and twisted it up. She did not know how. It is so untidy. There is so much wind. She was angry with herself for apologizing. It was he who ought to have apologized. She pushed the hair away behind her ears and got it fastened somehow. I did not hear you knock, she said. I fear I didn't knock. The veranda door was open. I saw nobody about. I did not know whether I should find anyone. You are so often out now. Yes, I walk with old Captain Morgan about this time. In the morning I am always at home. If I had known that, I should have come in the morning, he said. Not regularly because of the bank, but I should have come once to see you. However, this is far better. I am so glad to find you. I have wished for this for months past. "'Has it never occurred to you that I was anxious to see you, Hester? "'You look to me as if you were keeping away. "'Why should I keep away? "'I do always the same thing at the same hour. "'Captain Morgan is old. "'He requires to have somebody with him. "'And I? "'I am young, and I want somebody with me.' "'Oh, it does not matter about young people,' Hester said. "'I think it matters most of all, "'because they have their life before them.' 
And don't you know the choice of a companion tells for so much? A companion? Oh, that is quite a different question, said Hester. It is teaching I have always wanted, never a companion's place. I have heard of that, said Harry. When you were quite a little thing, you wanted to teach, and Aunt Catherine would not let you. You, teaching, it would have been quite out of the question. Won't you sit down? Do come for once now that I have found you, and sit down here. It was the little old-fashioned settee that was indicated, where there was just room for two. Oh, I have got things to do, cried Hester in alarm. My mother will be here immediately, but I have got something upstairs. Always when I come, he said. Just once, because I am here, listen to me, Hester. It won't take very long. I think you use me very ill. You know I come here for you, and you will never let me see you. And now when I find you by chance, you insist that you have something to do. Leave it till tomorrow. Perhaps after tomorrow, said Harry in a lugubrious voice. I may not be coming any more. Is anything to happen tomorrow? said Hester, betrayed by his seeming gravity. Then Harry cheered up and became more at his ease. Not, he said, if something should happen tonight. That's what I wish, that something should happen now. Sit down, please, and listen. Don't you know, Hester, they say women always know, that I've been in love with you ever so long? No, I don't know anything about it, said Hester, though a sudden flush came over her face. She had seated herself on a sofa in a kind of desperation, fearing that he meant to place himself beside her. And such had been Harry's intention, but some dim sense of fitness moved him to depart from this portion of his programme. He stood before her instead, looking down upon her, feeling now that he had it all in his own hands. It is true, though. What do you suppose I have been coming here for every night? I think I've been in love with you ever since I first saw you, when you were only a child. Now I'm alone since my sister is married, and quite free to choose where I like. He made a pause, but Hester did not say anything. She sat drawing patterns upon the carpet with her foot listening because she could not help it. She who was so full of eagerness and life, it seemed to Harry as if every line of her figure expressed the listlessness of a subject that wearied her. Now this was more than a fellow could stand, although even now he felt that it drew him on. By Jove, he cried, one would think you were getting offers every day of your life. She looked up at him with a brightening countenance. No, she said, if this is an offer, Cousin Harry, it is the first I have ever had. And you think no more of it than that, he cried, with most natural feeling, flinging himself down in a low wicker-work chair at her feet, so that he made it shake and tremble. This restored Hester once more to herself. She began to be amused, which, in the dull life she was leading, told for so much. How should I take it? I don't know, indeed, for I never was in the circumstances before— it is true that I have read about it in books, said Hester, considering. A girl in a novel would say that it was a great honor you had done her, cousin Harry, for he showed signs of natural impatience, jumping up and pacing noisily about the room. Don't you see it is very difficult? You make a statement to me about your own state of mind, and then you look as if you expected something from me. But what am I to say? I am not in love with you, or anybody." Hester added quietly, as if by an afterthought. He was coming towards her with his lips apart, ready to speak, but this quiet little additional word seemed to stop in a moment what he was going to say. 
He did not quite know how, nor did she know whether she meant anything by it, but it had an immediate effect. He gave a gasp as if those arrested words almost choked him, then said, "'Nor anybody?' suddenly. It had seemed certain to him before that. She never could have seen anyone, and she had informed him that this was her first offer. Nevertheless, he took these words, having them thrown at him, as it were, in a surprise, as a great concession. He drew a long breath and said, "'Then, Hester, there is the more chance for me.' Thus, in a moment, their relative positions were changed. Harry had begun by feeling that he had a great deal to bestow, many things which no girl in her senses could neglect or reject. But in a moment he had been reduced to what in chivalry should be a lover's only standing ground, the right of telling his love, with or without response, waiting absolutely upon his lady's pleasure, hoping for her bounty no more. He was so carried away by this new impulse that he did not understand himself, or the change worked in him, but with a gasp as for breath, turned from the nineteenth-century version of love-making to the primitive one, not knowing what he did. "'I don't know,' said Hester. "'Perhaps I cannot tell. I don't know anything about it. And if I must tell you the truth, Cousin Harry, I don't wish to know.' It seems to me that all that is silly between you and me. You can come here as often as you like. My mother is always glad to see you. We are all very good friends. What advantage do you think there would be in turning everything upside down, in making a great fuss and disturbance and changing all our relations? I cannot see what object there is in it. I think we are much better to stay as we are. But I don't think so, said Harry stoutly. If you're going to argue about it, I never was good at that sort of thing, and you might easily beat me, but I don't think so. I don't care about being good friends. I want you to belong to me, to live with me, you and your mother too. Why, we might go on as we are doing for a hundred years, and we never could be of any use to each other. Here Hester stopped him with raised hand and gesture. Oh yes, a great deal of use. To be friends is about the best thing in the world. Not half so good, cried Harry, as being man and wife. My house might all be at sixes and sevens, and you could not help me to manage it, living here, and you would never let me be of any use to you. Don't you see? If we were married, I could give you everything you wanted. It would be natural. We should get on together, I know. I should never grudge you anything, and your mother could come back to her old home, and I should see to her comfort, too. Whereas here, living as we are... "'What can I do? Or you for me?' said Harry. "'Ah, that's all nonsense about being friends. "'It isn't your friend I want to be.' "'What you say is very curious to me,' said Hester. "'There is a great deal that is very fine in it, cousin Harry. "'To offer to give me all that is very nice of you, "'and I should like to help you to manage your house. "'I have often thought I should like to try. "'Very likely I should not succeed, but I should like to try.' It is the easiest thing in the world, he said with a smile that was tender and touched Hester's heart. As soon as ever you marry me. But the preliminary is just what I don't like, said Hester. I would rather not marry anyone. I don't see the need for it. We are very well as we are, but we don't know what a new state of things might do for us. I know, said Harry, what it would do for me. It would make me very happy and comfortable at home, which I am not now. It would settle us both in life. 
A young fellow is thought nothing of till he is married. He may go off to the bad at any time. He may take a wrong turn, and in business he is never relied upon in the same way. When he has a wife, he has given hostages to society, they say. That is what it would do for me. Except being richer and better off and able to make your mother comfortable and so forth, I can't say, of course, what it would do for you. Nor I either, she said gravely. All these things would be very good, but it might make me into something I shouldn't like. I feel afraid of it. I have no inclination to it, but all the other way. By Jove, said Harry, which was an exclamation he never used, save when very hard bested. That is not very complimentary to me. Did you wish me to pay you compliments? No, we are arguing out the general question, said Hester with her serious face. Harry was at his wit's end with impatience and provokedness, if we may use such a word. He could have seized her with his hands and shaken her, and yet all the time he was still conscious that this strange treatment drew a fellow on. "'I suppose all this means that you won't have me?' he said after a pause. "'I think so, Cousin Harry. I am not satisfied that it would do us any good. But don't rush away in a temper,' she said, laying her hand lightly on his arm." "'Don't be vexed. Why should you? I don't mean to vex you. If I don't see a thing in the same light as you do, that is no reason why you should be angry.' "'By Jove!' said Harry again. "'If a man is not to be vexed when he's refused, I wonder what you think he's made of. Not flesh and blood.' "'Sense,' said Hester, "'and kindness. These are things you are made of, whether you are angry or not.' She had risen up and stood looking at him as he turned round hastily and made for the door. But this flattery, if it was flattery, stopped him. He turned round again and stood looking at her, tantalized, provoked, soothed, not knowing what to say. "'If you think all that of me, why won't you have me?' he said, stretching out wistful hands towards her. Esther shook her head. "'I don't want to have anyone,' she said. Mrs. John had been listening on the stairs. Not listening, she was too far off to hear a word, but waiting for the indications which a step, a sound of movement, the opening of a door might give. The stair was an old oaken one at the end of the passage, hidden in the evening dimness, dark at any time even in the day. When the door did open at last, though it did so with a little jar as from an agitated hand, Yet two voices came out, and the sound of their conversation was not angry, nor like that of people who had quarrelled. But, on the other hand, it was not low like the talk of lovers, and Mrs. John could not conceive it possible that if he had been accepted, Harry would have left the house without seeing her. That was impossible. Either nothing had been said on the subject, or else... But what else? She was confounded and could not tell what to think. Esther went out with him to the veranda door. It was she who did most of the talking. She called out to him something that sounded like, Don't be long coming back, as he went out. Mrs. John by this time had hurried out of the staircase and rushed to a window whence she could see him departing. He turned round and waved his hand, but he also shook his head with a look more completely lover-like than Mrs. John had yet seen him cast at her child. It was full of tender reproach, yet pleasure, disappointment, but also something that was far from despair. 
It is all very well for you to say so, he said. What did it mean? Mrs. John hurried down when he had disappeared, tingling with curiosity and anxiety. She found Hester sitting in the twilight, quite unoccupied, her hands in her lap, her eyes gazing straight before her. Nothing could be more unlike her usual dislike to idleness. She was lying back on the settee, thinking, not even asking for lights. Mrs. John stole to her in the gathering darkness and gave her a sudden kiss. The mother was tremulous and shaken, the daughter very calm. "'Oh, Hester, what has happened? Have you accepted him?' said Mrs. John. "'Have you refused him? What has been going on? Now it is over, you might let me know.' "'I am just trying to think, mother,' Hester said. End of chapter 14